hey guys, it's your favourite Psychonaut Bogan, your mate Tom. I don't know what that was, but anyways, welcome to the second episode of the Your Mate Tom podcast. Before I introduce this episode's guest, I just got to cover a few things. Some of you may know, but this podcast and YouTube channel is completely funded by you guys. As you know, YouTube isn't so kind to content creators like myself, where we talk about controversial topics, and as soon as I put any title or tag to do with drugs whatsoever, it gets demonetized. Boo, I know, it kind of sucks. Like I remember looking at my Coca documentary, even though I did it where it was legal, it's not a very potent psychoactive plant. It's like less intense than coffee, actually. It has so many medicinal properties to it, but it got age-restricted and completely demonetized. And I tried to appeal it, and they're like, nah, sorry, mate. And then I look at some videos, and it's like, 15 shots in under one hour, right? So apparently it's okay to drink 15 shots of a carcinogenic poison that could literally kill you, but you can't have a mild stimulant plant that has no significant side effects. Man, I try to understand this well, but stuff like this, I'm like, really? Well, anyways, you just gotta play by their rules, but things like this, guys, makes Patreon a very vital aspect of what keeps this channel and podcast running. So if you want to support this cause, this mission, whatever you want to call it, that way I can continue to educate you guys on drugs, you know, whether it's the science, the philosophical aspects to it, or political stuff. Anyways, go check out Patreon. You can pledge as little as $2 a month, which you're not even going to notice that out of your bank account. But even if enough people do it, it makes a huge difference in my life and also allows me to put more time and effort into building this podcast and making higher quality content. There are also some cool perks like monthly live streams, merch giveaways, exclusive content and things of this nature. We also have some milestone goals so we are almost three quarters at the time of this recording anyway to our first milestone and as soon as we hit it which is going to be really cool will allow me to work on some very exciting bigger budget pieces of content which you guys have been wanting for for a very long time. For example, my girlfriend's first acid experience documentary which she had at Adam's house, so he might make a special appearance, who knows. But in order for me to pull this off, I have to bleed a lot of time and effort and love and care into it. I also have some cool documentary ideas like my San Pedro experience and also other things that I don't want to really talk about now so I'm going to be on the hush hush but trust me it's some really cool stuff as well as I want to make an LSD trip simulation which I'll need to hire some sort of a graphic special effects guy, I don't know, whatever you want to call him. And if you are one of those people then email me. Another way to support this podcast is to by match. There's some pretty cool designs out there. I know they can be very out there and psychedelic. We're working on more minimalist designs as well, uh, if you want to be more subtle about it. But that being said, go check it out. You might find something that you like and it also supports this podcast. One last business thingy is that this podcast is sponsored by Audible. I've always enjoyed listening to podcasts over reading, uh, personally. Like, I love listening to audiobooks because I can do other shit, like go for a walk out in nature and listen to it while driving, which is really cool because it sort of turns your car into like this moving university where you just learn and grow and explore new ideas while you're just sitting there in traffic, you know? So you can make your driving time more productive. 
So if you want to support this podcast, go check out Audible, but click on the affiliate link below because that's what helps support this channel. Otherwise, I don't really benefit from it. But that being said, there's some really amazing books with whole, all sorts of things. A few recommendations right off the bat is Mastery by Robert Greene. That's one of my favorite books of all time. Or you can listen to more spiritual books like The Power of Now or A New Earth by Eckhart Tolle. One that I'm listening to right now is called Cutting Through Spiritual Materialism. So I'm not going to talk about here, but it's pretty mind-blowing. Check out the link and you'll get a free 30-day trial and one free audiobook. So it won't even cost you a cent. And if you want to take advantage and not pay a dime, then just get a free book, cancel the service. It's all good. On to my next guest, Martin Ball. He's a very, very interesting character with a lot of interesting ideas, particularly on enlightenment and the non-dual approach to psychedelics, particularly 5-MeO-DMT, a.k.a. the God Mode. Those who have been following my channel know that I had a very challenging ordeal, you could call it. A psychedelic-triggered existential crisis after experiencing this powerful African root bark, also known as Iboga, which I had collaborating with Adam from Psych Substance. <laughs> uh, that was a big mistake, and that existential crisis... And despair lingered for many, many, many months. Only now... This is actually one of the reasons why I came to Thailand to deal with this head-on. And this trip has helped me so much. Like, uh, It's given me a lot of time and space to not only self-inquire and deal with this, but I've been eating super clean, uh, exercising, doing like Muay Thai, yoga, did a two-day silent meditation retreat been meditating a lot and I think one of the most important aspects is that I'm on a long break from all drugs. I made me coffee here and again but I was using cannabis in particular as a crutch to deal with this existential depression and that wasn't helping it was just kind of delaying the integration process. So this existential depression would hit me in waves and just before I started this podcast the anxiety started to settle in. So I wasn't at my very best, so you'd have to excuse the interview. Like, it's not bad. Maybe you wouldn't even notice if I didn't say anything now. But there were certain parts of the interview, especially at the beginning, where I would get a little bit anxious, especially when he's talking about 5-MeO-DMT and ego death experiences. And I was like, oh! I was just at that state where I was like, even talking about psychedelics sometimes uh, just provoked this existential anxiety. But apart from that, the interview went really well. We covered a lot of very interesting topics. Um, you know, Martin Ball, he's, again, he's a very interesting dude who has, who, as far as I'm aware of, is the leading expert on 5-MeO-DMT. He's written a lot of books on it. I'll leave links in the description box for his website where you can check out a lot of his books and art and music and all this kind of stuff. He's a multi-talented dude. I first discovered him through Leo Gura's interview, he's from Actualize.org. I was drawn in and resonated with a lot of what he was saying. You could say he has a very different approach to most people in the psychedelic field. So in this interview we covered 5-MeO-DMT, obviously, enlightenment, his non-dual approach to psychedelics. We also talked about the link of the psychedelic experience and the origin of religion. He's highly educated in religious studies. Just ch check out his website if you want to know more about him and his work. I also handpicked a few of my favorite questions which I asked you guys on Instagram. Uh, so that was pretty fun. And if you guys want to get involved in the questions that I ask guests, 
usually at the tail end of the interview, then follow me on Instagram at yourmatetom3. I don't know why I'm talking like that. But anyways, enjoy the podcast, guys. And if you do, remember to like, share this video around. Let's grow this thing together and subscribe if you have not already. And if you want an audio version of this podcast, check out the link below, which will take you to iTunes. And if you're feeling extra generous, then you can always leave a five-star review on iTunes. You know, let's get this thing out. I don't think there's enough people talking about this kind of stuff. So, yeah. Anyways, I really hope you enjoy this podcast. I have some really cool guests in the future. If you have any requests, then, again, comment below. Just comment whatever, man. You can even comment, this podcast is shit, Tom. And I'll be like, thanks, bro. But anyways, enough rambling. I'll catch you on the next video. Peace. So, hey everybody, welcome to the Your Mate Tom podcast. I've got a very special guest, Martin Ball. How are you doing, man? I'm doing quite well. How are you? Yeah, very, very good. Like, I was just speaking to you before, just a bit earlier than I'm used to getting up, but it's all good. Yeah, yeah. Um, so, there's a few avenues I would like to explore during our conversation, um, but I would like to start with your understanding with entheogens, and if you'd like to explain to the audience, like, your non-dual approach with, and with working with psychedelics and just how you got started on this path to begin with. Okay. Well, th- th- there's a few different questions <laughs> wrapped up in there. Um, yeah, I'll, I guess I'll first just talk about non-duality. Um, this is what most people want to ask me about because my approach to working with psychedelics and even my approach to addressing non-duality is a bit different than you're really going to find anywhere else. In fact, I'd say it's rather unique, which is, mm. so that's what most people want to know about when they talk to me. Um, so my by non-duality, um, for anybody who's not familiar with the term, what that means, you know, just put it in really simple language, is to say everything is one. Mm-hmm. Everything really, literally is one. And that's not just, oh, yeah, we're all one, we're together. You know, it's not just some feel-good kind of thing. It literally is the nature of reality. And so one of the ways that I describe that, the language that I use personally is I say that all of reality is God. Mm. And that includes this very moment right now. Everything that we're experiencing in this moment is actually God experiencing itself. Um, So a distinction that I make there is uh, many religious traditions, particularly in the West, when we're dealing with things like Judaism, Christianity, Islam, the mainstream view of those three religions is this idea of a transcendent God, Mm. that God is some all-powerful being that stands back and says, okay, I'm going to create reality. Poof, there, I created reality. And let's see, let's make some people, poof, 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 and let's make some animals and some trees and shit like that. And okay, there, there's reality over there, and there's planets and uh, galaxies and um, supernovas and black holes and shit Mm. like that. But God is understood within these religious traditions as to be beyond that. And so God is transcendent. So God is separate from that which God creates. And then in these religions, it creates kind of this religious and spiritual quest for people to say, oh, well, God created my soul and I I want my soul to go back to God. Mm. So I'm going to be a good boy. I'm going to be a good girl. I'm going to be a good Jew, a good Christian, a good Muslim. And maybe if I do everything right, because this transcendent God also issues a bunch of laws and commands and things that you should do and things that you shouldn't do. Mm. If you're a good boy or a good girl, then you get to go to heaven when you die. And if you're a bad boy or bad girl, 
you, you burn in hell. hell. Yeah. yeah, you're going to burn <laughs> in hell. So these religions set up this idea of this religious quest of like following the doctrine, following the dogma so that you can be rewarded by this transcendent deity, which is characterized as being transcendent and completely and wholly other. It's something mm. that is different and distinct from us, uh, these created creatures. So the non-dual view is to say that version of God is incorrect, mm. that God is reality itself. God is not separate from reality. God is reality. And my version of non-duality also does away with things like heaven and hell and souls and spirits. Um, because since God is everyone and everything, that that means you and I here speaking to each other, we are both two different versions of God mm. talking to itself from other sides of the planet. But we are wrapped in flesh and we're wrapped in this um, egoic identity. And so the ego is your mm. sense of self, your separate sense of self that says, hi, I'm Tom, or hi, I'm Martin, or I'm Joe, or I'm Jane, or I'm Mary, whoever it is that you think you are. <laughs> but that, that ego is just a character that this one universal consciousness is, in essence, is pretending to be. So over there mm. in Australia, God is pretending to be Tom. And God <laughs> does such a good job of it that Tom probably believes that he's Tom. Tom probably doesn't really believe that he's God, or he might have some issues with that. It's like, oh, I don't know about that. Can I say that? And then over <laughs> here, over here in Oregon, yeah. uh, in Ashland, Oregon, at this moment, God is also playing this character of Martin. Mm. But these are just two different characters. We are like pawns on the chessboard of reality, and God mm. is playing this game with itself. So there really isn't any separate identity. There's nothing separate from God. So that's my non-dual approach. That, mm. That's what I describe as non-duality, that literally there's only one universal consciousness and being that is everything, and there is nothing exists that is separate from that in any way, shape, or form. Mm. And it's a very t tough pill to swallow because if we're God, then that means that we have to accept everything, right? All the darkness, all the you know, the, the evil, the perceived evil in the world and stuff like It's not just the good and the love, right? Yeah, yeah. yeah. So that's where it, it's really kind of at odds with, you know, a lot of people who get spiritual, they, you know, they say, oh, we've got to get rid of these dark energies or these mm -hmm. negative things. We've got to turn everything to light and happiness and love. And as I see it, that's just a game that egos like to play, that yeah. egos like to think that they have something important to do and some mission to accomplish and they want to be righteous and holy and spiritual and all that. But that's just, that's just a game. That's just something for a confused ego to do. It really doesn't have any relevance for any kind of self-awakening or, or mm. self-realization. And learning to accept all of these things as God also means that the category of something being sacred, that's an mm. irrelevant category. You know, like in religions, they say, well, this book, this book right here, this is really sacred yeah. because this is the word of God and that these actions, these rituals that we're doing here, this is sacred. Or this building over here where we go and we pray to God, this is also sacred. Mm. But when you look at the world and say, well, everything is God, then nothing is in any way more sacred than anything else. Yeah. And nothing is necessarily better than anything else. And it, we have to take the entire package of reality and say, well, all of it is God. So the most wonderful, beautiful, amazing, loving things, those are God. Mm -hmm. The most terrible, awful, destructive, hateful, ugly things, 
those also are God. Mm. And see, when you look at it as all being one being interacting with itself, then we can kind of get over our individual perspectives of what we think is right or wrong or good or bad. Because, you know, when we see something horrible, we say, oh, look, all those, those millions of people over there were just killed by those evil other people that did that really awful, terrible thing. And so they're evil and these other people are innocent mm. victims. But if you step back and you say, well, look, all of these characters, they're all God. It's all one being mm. doing it to itself for its own purposes that really deflates the notion of right or wrong or good or bad because every victim is God. And deep down inside there, God's saying, oh, yeah, I got killed in the most brutal way. That was such an amazing experience. I'm so glad I got to experience that. Right. And then on the other hand, it's like, wow, I got to be this, this um, maniacal, homicidal maniac, and I got to kill all these people. That was an interesting experience. So there's, there's no value judgment within reality from that perspective because oh, everything yeah. is fundamentally equal. Yeah, so morality yeah. is just a projection of the ego pretty much. Exactly, yeah. exactly. which doesn't mean – Hey, go out and be an asshole. Yeah, of because course, yeah. you know when you start to realize, like, when you really realize, oh, look, this other person that I'm talking to here, this other person that I'm interacting with at the deepest level, mm. he is another version of myself. Why would I want to be an asshole to mm. you? You see, yeah. these these what we perceive as unethical behaviors or immoral behaviors, those arise out of ignorance of the nature of the self, hmm. that people do stupid stuff because they don't know who or what they are. And so they think, oh, well, my religion says that these people are bad, so I've got to hate them. That's just a product of the ego. When you overcome the ego, you overcome these inherent conceptual problems that are present within the ego. Hmm. So so that that's non-duality in, sort of in a nutshell. In a nutshell, yeah. It's, it, yeah, it's, yeah, it's a big topic. So it, it, is. it takes a lot of time to really <laughs> unpack it. But to circle back around to entheogens and psychedelics, um, my interest in these two things coincides because of the way that psychedelics work mm. at a really fundamental level. Um, so first, I shall back up one moment and say that I would describe the ego, this, this character sense of self that we have that says, hi, I'm Tom. Hi, I'm Martin. That character is just a collection of patterns of energy. Yeah. They're they are ways that we choose to express ourselves, the ways that we choose to think, ways we choose to act. And taken all together, it creates a composite that creates a character. But these are all just expressions of energy, mm. right? Every time I'm speaking, this is an expression of energy. Every time I'm thinking, that's an expression of energy. Anytime I do something with my body and I'm moving around, that's an expression of energy, mm. okay? And, you know, when you look at different people, different people have different ways of talking, different forms of body language, different ways of gesturing, um, different ways of speaking and tone of voice and accent and all of these things and different things they believe about themselves internally. So that's the ego. It's just this collection of energetic patterns. Okay, so now back to psychedelics. Psychedelics do a lot of different things, but at the most fundamental level, what they do is they amplify and enhance our ability to both perceive and experience energy. Hmm. Okay? Yeah. Um, and at, at mild doses, 
that has some effect on the ego, but not a really dramatic effect. You know, yeah, you take a lower dose level of a, <laughs> you take a lower dose level of a psychedelic. You'll you might have some auditory hallucinations. You see some interesting stuff. You feel energies moving around in your body, but for the most part, your ego is still there. So it's like, yeah. oh wow, I'm tripping. Look at that interesting yeah, stuff. Bright this colors, fractals. Nice. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Which all of that, all of that's fine. That's yeah. all good stuff. But when you go deeper than that, when you take very strong doses of psychedelics, and particularly psychedelics that have the power to really overwhelm the ego, mm. and here the paradigmatic example would be 5-methoxydimethyltryptamine. This is the most powerful entheogenic molecule that exists in reality. I get, I get anxiety just you saying that. <laughs> yeah. It's, it looks, it's yeah. big stuff. It yeah. definitely is. But what happens with 5-MeO-DMT, more so than any other psychedelic, mm -hmm. is that it's so extraordinarily powerful that when you consume it, within seconds, it has the possibility to completely energetically override all the structures mm. of the ego simultaneously. Okay? Wow. Most psychedelics don't have that kind of effect. Um, so with 5-MeO-DMT, let's say you're smoking it. If you mm. smoke it, you take one hit, and as you're taking the hit in, you start tripping really hard. Mm. And the sensation is that there's all this energy that's rising up, and it becomes big, and then it gets bigger, and then it's bigger and bigger, and it reaches this level where it becomes infinite. And within that, there's the possibility where all sense of your individual identity and sense of self expands, dissolves, and washes away. Mm. And so this is where then the non-dual experience can arise, where there's no ego there. So for Tom, the Tom perspective would be, oh my God, I'm dying. And then the ego falls away and then there's no Tom there. Mm. And there's even, there's nothing to see there. There's nothing to experience there in a sense. It's just the immediate naked presentation of reality where everything is immediately experienced as being one. Mm. And so this is the full transcendence of the ego. And then after five, ten minutes, you know, the energy of the psychedelic starts to wear down. And then the ego starts to reform. These layers of the self come back in. But it's this very effective tool for giving people the opportunity to experience this non-dual state of being. Hmm. which is very, very, very rare for human beings to have. So I always like to give the example of, say, Hinduism or Buddhism. Not all forms of Buddhism are non-dual. Not all forms of Hinduism are non-dual, but there are various strands within these religions. Yeah. And there they mostly promote the idea of using meditation as a tool to achieve a non-dual experience and then also achieve non-dual liberation. But within these traditions... They also believe in reincarnation and they say, well, you can meditate, but it might take you thousands of lifetimes before you actually have a non-dual experience because it's that rare because the yeah. ego is incredibly tenacious. Mm. It doesn't want to give up. It doesn't want to dissolve. That's not its job. The job of the ego is to convincingly present the reality, the, the, the illusory reality of the self so that God can convince itself that it is Tom and that mm. it is Mark. See, that's the job of the ego. The yeah. job of the ego is not just to give up and say, oh, shit, I'm God. 
that's that's not the job of the ego. Yeah, of course. So, and, yeah, and like dissolving the ego means to die in a sense, right? Right. From the ego's perspective. Um, yeah. Yeah, and and the ego uh, that freaks the ego out because it's mm. just oh my god, I'm dying. I don't want to die. So there's a strong instinct embedded within the ego to maintain itself. Mm. So here psychedelic usage and particularly 5-MeO-DMT is far more effective for helping people have a non-dual experience than say meditation or a rigorous um, spiritual or religious program that they're following. So that's where my interests come together is that psychedelics have the possibility of introducing people to non-dual experience which is the true nature of reality and that when people get introduced to that non-dual nature of the self then they can start to unwind the structures of the ego, which I also mm. like to call a prison. Yeah. And that it can help people liberate themselves. And that, in my view, if everybody did this, war would evaporate overnight. Violence, mm. ethnic cleansing, genocide, all of this stuff is a result of the ego. So I see psychedelics as being a, a very powerful potential tool to really change the way that humanity both understands itself and interacts with itself and reality at large, including Mm. all the plants and animals and everything else. Because from that non-dual perspective, you learn to see everything as yourself. And then you learn how to love yourself in all your Mm. many forms. And that that's where we have the most powerful potential to really revolutionize the way that human beings interact with each other and understand themselves. So that, again, in a nutshell, is my basic interest in <laughs> yeah, psychedelics and good. in non-duality. Yeah. And with 5-MeO-DMT, like, I personally haven't experienced it quite yet. I just don't feel ready for it, which brings me to my next question. Like, is there anyone that you wouldn't recommend to try 5-MeO-DMT? Like, do you, should you feel like a strong calling to do it? Or could that, like, if you do it prematurely, could that result in like a terrifying trip that could do more harm than good or like what's your thoughts on that? Um, All of these are possibilities. Um, First thing that I always like to say with 5-MeO-DMT and this is true for psychedelics in general is that results vary. Mm. It's always important for people to understand that because especially when people are talking about um, 5-MeO-DMT, those of us who have had these really big, amazing, powerful, beautiful experiences. We talk about it in this Mm. way, but it's important to understand that there are also people who have had incredibly traumatic experiences who feel shattered Mm. by it. And so not every ego is necessarily ready for this. And another thing that I've learned is that there's really no way to tell. Okay. Mm. I've had people who they seem like they're ready to go. seems like, well, this person is a good candidate for this experience. And then they come out the other end. It's like, oh my God, I wish I had never done that. My whole life is falling apart. I don't know who I am. Reality is dissolving and people freak out. And then there's other people that you might think, I think this person's going to have a hard time, but then poop, they pop open. They have this amazing, beautiful experience and they come Mm. back and it's like, oh my God, thank you so much. I'm so glad I had this experience. Um, so those are things to always keep in mind that, that results vary and you never know what you're going to get. Yes. Now, tricky business. <laughs> it is. It is tricky business. Aside from that, another thing that I like to tell people is that if you don't feel ready for it, then don't do it. Mm. But the day, the day you wake up that you say, you know what? I think I'm ready. It's about learning how to trust yourself at a really deep level and to mm. trust your energy. And if energetically there's a shift where you say, you know what? I want to do this. 
then that means that you probably are, even if it's going to be a difficult experience for yep. you, that you can trust that you will give yourself what you need because it's always an amplification of you in that very moment. Mm. So even if someone has a difficult time, what that then reveals to them is, wow, I'm really fighting a lot with mm. myself internally. So now I need to pay more attention to how it is that I'm fighting, yeah. how it is that I'm creating my own struggle for myself. And then people who have big, beautiful experiences, you know, even there, it's kind of funny the way that it goes. If someone has a really deeply traumatic experience, often if they go back and they do it again, then it starts to become more productive and positive for yeah. them. Versus someone who has an initial experience where it's just big and beautiful and amazing, it's really common where if they go back for a second experience, all of a sudden now their resistance starts to show up and it becomes more mm. difficult and challenging for them. The point is, no matter who you are, everyone is carrying around huge amounts of garbage and unresolved energy within themselves. Oh, yeah. <laughs> and when you work with a high intensity entheogenic medicine like this that is producing infinite levels of energy, whatever it is that you're holding on to, whatever it is that you have unresolved within you, whatever it is that you are struggling with or fighting with or have judgments about, it's going to rise to the surface when you work with a medicine like this. It might not arise on the first time, but then it might be the second time. Yeah. Or again, your first experience might just be beautiful, like you get this moment of grace. But then mm. after that, everyone has work to do. And so it's going to bring that to the surface. So another thing that I always tell people with 5-MeO in particular, more so than other medicines, yeah. is that this is like opening Pandora's box in the, the ancient Greek myth where P Pandora goes and opens this box and then all these nasty things come out and she can't get them back in the box. 5-MeO-DMT is like that. That mm. um, In our normal operating procedure, we're not encountering infinite levels of energy. So we can keep stuff hidden from ourselves. We can you know, shove stuff away and say, no, I don't want to look at that. You know, maybe 50 years down the road, I'll deal with this trauma, you know, but I'm not going to do that now. Yeah. But see, when, when you work with 5-MeO, it uncovers everything and all at once. And so it's important that people be committed to working through whatever process arises as a result of doing that. And, you know, all the psychedelics have the potential to do this, but I just single out 5-MeO because it's so much more powerful and is so much more radical. You know, even yeah, it seems people, so. it, it really is. I mean, yeah. people who maybe have had years of experience with ayahuasca, yeah. they have no idea what 5-MeO is actually like. People might have been eating peyote for their entire lives and mm. had many amazing experiences with peyote. That's fine. You still have no idea what the 5-MeO experience is mm. like. Um, so it's just important for people to keep that in mind that, there's many different levels of energy. There's many different presentations of energy through different psychedelics. But the top of the line is 5-MeO-DMT. There's just nothing more powerful than that. Mm. So It's like the star on top of the Christmas tree, right? <laughs> yeah, that's, that's what Rack Razam likes, likes to call it. I also like to call it the crown jewel. You know, yeah. It's like Rack describes it. We've got this Christmas tree, and you've got all these nice little lights and baubles and ornaments that are all over the Christmas tree. And these are all the different medicines. So we've got ayahuasca. Yeah. We've got salvia divinorum. We've got peyote. We've got mushrooms, LSD. And then you've got you know the lab ones. You've got MDMA, you've got 2CB, 2CI, you've got all these things on the Christmas mm. tree. 
at the top right there <laughs> is 5-MeO-DMT because it takes you to the non-dual experience, whereas mm. most of the other medicines don't do that. And if they do it, it's very rare mm. that it happens. You know. So yep. for example, ayahuasca. People drink ayahuasca. It's really common to hear people talk about spirits. Like, oh, well, I, I, was, I saw these spirits and yeah. I was in this beautiful realm and there were all these angels and then it got dark and there was all these demons and there was all, you know, these, all these eyes and teeth and tentacles and all this stuff. And so they have really big, amazing experiences where they might not know what room they're in. They might forget who they are and they're mm. completely enraptured in this visionary state. That is nothing compared to 5-MeO because, see, there's still, a, there's still an ego there. There's still someone who is perceiving and seeing yeah. and experiencing and there's still a sense of otherness. So that's what duality is, is otherness that, okay, I am seeing these spirits. Mm. If I am seeing spirits, that means I'm still in my ego in yeah. some format and I'm still perceiving something that I believe exists outside of me in mm. some context. Okay, yeah. so that's where, that's where most powerful psychedelics are at, whereas 5-MeO-DMT blows right past that into, oh my God, it's all God. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and it's not about spirits and realms and entities. It's that there's this one universal consciousness that creates everything that we experience and that that, that's what's at the center. That's what mm. all of reality is made out of. So that's why Rack describes it as, well, that's, it's the ornament at the top of the Christmas tree because there, there's, from there, everything else diversifies, mm. but that's the core of reality right there. Yeah. Um, since you're bringing up ayahuasca as well, uh, can you explain to the audience the difference between 5-MeO-DMT and just regular DMT, which is N-N-dimethyltryptamine, which is also the active compound in ayahuasca? There are, you know, the basic molecule is N-N-DMT, N-N-dimethyltryptamine. And you can make all kinds of changes, very mm. small changes to that basic molecule, and you get a wide variety of other things. So um, psilocybin mushrooms is 4-H-O-D-M-T, I yeah. think. Could have, could have my letters and numbers wrong because there's a lot of them, right? Yeah. So that's, that's psilocin and psilocybin. Yeah. Then um, you can tweak it in a lab and you can make something like 4-A-C-O-D-M-T. Yeah. And there's another form. It's, it's a DMT, but it has a little extra something on it, so mm. it changes the way that it reacts. Um, so... 5-MeO-DMT has the NN-DMT molecule and it has this 5-methoxy group that's then attached to that, mm. which it's, it's a small change that creates a huge difference. Um, so it, it's really quite amazing when you get down to the molecular science that these very small changes in molecules result in very radical differences in the experiences mm. that are generated from that molecule. Now, both NNDMT and 5-MeO-DMT are natural human neurotransmitters. They both exist in the human body and in all mammals. And we also have serotonin, which is another variation on the same basic mm. molecule. And we have melatonin. Um, so then when we're dealing with ayahuasca, most forms of ayahuasca are made with a combination of two plants. Mm. One of the plants will contain NNDMT, and another one of the plants will contain a monoamine oxidase inhibitor. 
Now, normally, we have these enzymes in our stomach that will very rapidly break down both DMT and 5-MeO-DMT. So if, so if you had a DMT sandwich, you eat the <laughs> DMT sandwich, nothing happens. Mm. Okay? Um, Where can I get we, this DMT sandwich? <laughs> well, essentially, essentially any meat that you might eat, if you're a meat eater, because all mammals have right, yeah. DMT inside them. So essentially <laughs> anything, any mammal that you might eat will have DMT in it. Also, all citrus fruits contain mm. DMT and 5-MeO-DMT. So if you drink a glass of orange juice, you're drinking a very small amount of DMT. Mm. Now, if you didn't have this enzyme in your stomach, if you drank a whole lot of orange juice, you might start tripping yeah. like you had just consumed some uh, ayahuasca. <laughs> but because we have this enzyme, it breaks it down in the stomach, and so no effect. Nothing happens. Yeah. When you combine it with the monoamine oxidase inhibitor, it allows you to absorb DMT or 5-MeO through the stomach. So that's what's happening with ayahuasca. Um, most forms of ayahuasca are made with NNDMT. In some rare instances, um, it also can be made with 5-MeO-DMT. So there are... Yeah, that was the last um, brew I had actually. Because yeah. one, one Bisa, does that have 5-MeO-DMT as well in it? I'm sorry, say plant, that again? The plant one Bisa that was in the brew that I had last time. But anyway, apparently it had 5-MeO-DMT. In it, so, okay. Yeah. Which I myself have not had the opportunity to drink a 5 meo ayahuasca. Yeah. I found it a lot more uh, powerful, actually, and more visual. So, yeah. Interesting. Yeah. yeah. Um, <laughs> I, you know, where I live here in Ashland, Oregon, there's mm. a lot of ayahuascaros. There's a lot of ayahuasca drinking that goes on here, and they've all heard me talk about 5 meo yep. and how much more powerful it is. And a lot of them who hadn't experienced 5 meo, they just kind of scoffed and said, like, no yeah. way. No way, ayahuasca is the most powerful. But <laughs> yeah. then, then a, a shaman from South America came through town, and he brought some 5-MeO ayahuasca with him. So a lot of people wow. here got to drink it. I found out about it the next day. It's like, yeah, last night we had this, so I didn't get to drink it. But <laughs> um, immediately afterwards, I had these ayahuascaros calling me and sending me messages saying, I just had 5-MeO and ayahuasca last night, and it blew me away. And so they all wow. commented upon how much more powerful it is. Yeah. But – at a basic level, um, DMT versus 5-MeO-DMT tends to be much more visual um, than 5-MeO. 5-MeO yeah. can be very visual, but often what people experience is that there is no visionary content, and so it's often called the void, or it might just mm. be pure white light yeah. without anything yeah. Yeah, without anything specific um, in it, whereas DMT um, is definitely... I, I would classify it as the most psychedelically, visually intense medicine that's available out there because it's mm. super high definition, it's neon bright, it's infinite fractal geometry yeah. and permutation stretching out and folding over in and on itself and tentacles and eyeballs and all kinds of wild stuff. And it's all very, very bright and very colorful. For the most part, if you take a large dose. Yep. It's interesting that at lower levels, DMT is not necessarily very visual. But mm. once you get into higher levels, it's extraordinary visual. If someone's only had um, psilocybin mushrooms, I tell them, oh, well, it's, it's, it's psilocybin mushrooms on steroids. <laughs> where it's just bam. Okay? Yeah. But if when comparing, say, like smoking DMT to smoking 5-MeO-DMT, NN-DMT only lasts from like 5 to 15 minutes. Um, 
and uh, 5-MeO DMT tends to last between 20 and 40 minutes. Mm. Um, okay. To get a really strong dose of NN DMT, you need like 50 to 100 milligrams versus a really strong dose on 5-MeO DMT is like 10 to 15 milligrams. So in general, it's understood to be about 10 times more powerful than NN DMT. Mm. Um, and that when 5-MeO is visual it tends to appear more, rather than like super bright neon colors like NNDMT, yeah. it's more of a pure white light mm. that has really finely rainbow refracted edges yeah. to it. Okay. Um, but it's, it's just much more of a white light kind of experience, or some people describe it as more of a golden light. Um, but it's not super bright colorful. Yeah. But when, when you do see it, um, the fractal geometry is pretty much identical to the structures you might see with NNDMT or ayahuasca or mushrooms. So it has a very distinct tryptamine visual nature to it. Yeah. You know, whereas like for anybody who's ever experienced like salvia divinorum, that also can be very strongly visual, but it's totally unique. Like salvia divinorum, when you see the fractal structures of salvia divinorum, they don't look anything like a tryptamine. Mm. It's very different. Or if you're working with a phenethylamine, that also tends to look different. So phenethylamines would be things like um, MDMA yeah. or mescaline, peyote. They have their own look to yeah. them. Whereas tryptamines have a very, you know, it's like it's this tryptamine signature. So 5-MeO-DMT can definitely look like mm. that. Um, but again, for most people, the overwhelming aspect of the experience is the sensation of energy getting bigger, 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 and then just dissolving all sense of individuality and all sense of physicality as well that you can't – when it's really strong, you don't feel your body. You don't know where the difference is between your body and anything else that exists in reality. Wow. And also your eyes might be wide open and everything just dissolves into pure white light. So I, I could be sitting here looking at you and then all of a sudden – where did everything go? Wow. Just yeah, reality disappears and it's this living conscious light that is turning over on itself and changing and fractaling out and that that's the only thing you can perceive. But it's not even something that you are seeing because there's not necessarily a sense of self there. It's more of I am this. Mm. This is what I am. I'm not seeing something. I'm seeing myself. Yeah. So there's – again, there's no duality. There's no – I am seeing an object as just, no, this is me. This is the pure experience of being itself without any separation, without any mm. individuality within it. So then with people who smoke DMT, usually hear reports of them contacting extraterrestrial beings and all that kind of stuff. Is that, so that's just, would you say that's just a projection of our ego? It's, what is yes. that? Yes. <laughs> yeah. It, it's a projection of the ego. But what trips people up about that is that when, when I say that, people say, there's no way I projected that. I couldn't have imagined the amazing things that I saw. So people yeah. think that if it's a projection that they must have some kind of control over it or that it came from their own personal individual ego mind, whereas they're yeah. seeing things that are blowing their mind. So they say, well, I can't have imagined that. The problem is, is that the ego doesn't realize that you are God. Okay, Your imagination is infinite and it's far more complex than you can imagine as an individual human being. Mm. But what happens is in these highly um, energized states, such as with NNDMT, if the ego doesn't dissolve, 
the see the ego creates the sense of self and the sense of otherness or subject and object it creates this duality simultaneously mm. so if i'm here there must be something over there that i'm looking at okay so if the ego is still present it's going to start to put faces on things and create beings and environments and objects so that there can be subject object relationships mm. so that's why it's a projection it doesn't mean that it comes out of your own personal narrative your own personal history mm. and it's not your own personal imagination it is your ego mind experiencing the imagination of god and confusing it for being something other than itself in that moment so it's with nndmt it's very rare that people actually have a full ego death or ego transcendent experience. Most of the time it doesn't happen. Mm. And that's why it's really common for people to say, well, I saw beings and entities and I was on some other planet or I was in some other realm. Yep. That's because the, the ego is still there and it's trying to create a sense of identity for itself and that which it is experiencing. So in rare moments – People might go beyond that and then it will be more mm. similar to 5-MeO-DMT where they say, well, there was this white light and I merged with the white light and then all sense of identity fell away and it was all God and then I fell out of that white light mm. and then there were angels and beings and I was up in heaven and saw all this stuff. But that's where the ego is still present mm. again. So in my view, and this is something that a lot of people don't like, is that None of these spirits are real. They don't exist, quote, out there anywhere. They are a product of the ego still being present within the psychedelic experience. Mm. And it's kind of like in a lucid dream where, you know, you might be in a dream and you think all this stuff is going on and you think it's all real. But if you become lucid in a dream, you realize, oh, wait, this is a dream I'm not talking to other people here. These are all me, so I can make these people do whatever I want. Or if I decide, hey, I want to go flying because this is just a dream, so there isn't any real mm, gravity. Yeah. I'm perceiving gravity right now. I'm experiencing gravity, but it's just a dream, so there isn't any gravity. So I can go fly around. So you can do that in a dream where you can kind of wake up and you realize, oh, this is a dream. You can do the same thing in a psychedelic experience where it's like, whoa, look at that <laughs> thousand-armed demon over there. He's coming to get me, but then you, it can click and say, oh, wait, that's me. And it's funny that mm. when people actually have these experiences, um, sometimes these beings, they'll even wink at you. They're even like, yeah, that's right. <laughs> I'm you. Because yeah. it's, it's a mirror. What's yeah. happening is you're perceiving yourself in a mirror, and the energy is responding to your emotional and <clears throat> mental state. So if something happens where suddenly you start to feel afraid, it gets scary. Yeah. Or if, you, if you're feeling like, oh, I can just really relax and trust this, it gets beautiful. Why? Mm. Because it's a mirror. Yeah. There's nothing else there. So that your energetic reactions are having an immediate response within the psychedelic state. And it happens so quickly, there's no lag time. Right? So sometimes people say, oh, well, I saw a demon and then I got scared. But I actually think it's something that happens simultaneously. You get scared, you see a demon, you think that one thing caused the other, but it's not. It's happening simultaneously because it's an immediate reflection 
of your energetic state and there's no lag time from either side mm. of this experiential divide. It's all happening in one moment. So that's why I always tell people, look, if you want to have a non-dual experience, you've got to relax, mm. you've got to trust, you've got to let go of your mind so that you're not trying to figure things out and identify things because that will prevent you from having a non-dual experience. If you're just like, yeah. whoa, what is all this? Yeah, over analyzing everything, yeah. Yeah, your mind is yeah. too active and so you're going to create objects for mm -hmm. you to experience and contemplate because your mind is too busy. So you have to let all of that go. So I tell people it's the fine art of doing absolutely nothing. Hmm. And if you can do that, then – because the ego is always trying to do something. Ego is busy, 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 busy. So if you can hit the point where you're doing nothing and you're completely relaxed and you're trusting and you can surrender, then it just goes poof and it all dissolves. And in that moment, the ego says, oh, my God, I'm dying. And if the ego can say, I guess I'm cool with that, then it turns into this beautiful positive experience. <laughs> yeah. But the ego, the ego can also fight and say, oh, wait, no, I don't want to die. Because in the moment, the ego thinks it's never going to come back. It thinks this yeah. is it. I've had a couple this of those moments. <laughs> yeah. yeah, and, it, and it, it rebounds so quickly. Yeah. It goes, whoa. No, I didn't want that to happen. But if you can just say, okay, I trust this. Mm. I accept the fact that I may never come back. I may never see my loved ones again. I may never get to finish that last season of Game of Thrones. Whatever <laughs> it is, you can let yourself, poof, yeah. you go. And the ironic part is that once the energy dies down, the ego always comes back. And it just goes clink, 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 clink. And then up, oh, you're, you're right back in the same character that you were in before. Um, but finding that level of trust is hard. And everyone, when they're going to experience 5-MeO-DMT for the first time, they're always scared because they've heard about this. Like, yeah. oh, this, this is big stuff. Mm. And the funny part is after people have had 5-MeO-DMT the first time, if they're going to go back and do it again, they are usually more scared than they were the first time because now they know – Mm. what they're actually getting into. Whereas before they just had some projection of, oh, well, it's going to be like this and that scares me. But now it's like, no, I really am going to experience myself as dying and becoming God and being in this exalted state and then mm. fall back down into the ego. And there's going to be tremendous amounts of energy. And so it, it terrifies people. And, and in some respects, it should. It's not something that's casual. It's not just Hey, I think I'm just going to try some 5-MeO-DMT today and, you know, see what happens, you know. Yeah, it's not to be taken uh, lightly, yeah. Yeah. And like I said earlier, it's like mm. opening Pandora's box. It's going to create the opportunity to really resolve a lot of things within yourself. But a lot of it is really challenging and really hard. And if people don't want to go through that challenge, well, then, then don't do it. It's not just for the merely curious. It's really... What I like to say is that if you are committed to truth, no matter what, if you are willing to completely shatter all of your beliefs and your identity and your complete sense of reality and being and then reconfigure it, mm. if that sounds appealing to you, if that sounds useful to you, then this might be something you want to do. If this does not sound appealing to you, stay away because you're yeah. not going to have a good time. <laughs> Yeah, I've, seen, I've yeah. seen a few videos of people smoking 5-MeO-DMT and it's, I've seen complete opposite end of the spectrum reactions. Some will have the cosmic orgasm, as I've heard, and other people will just have this terrifying psychotic breakdown. And it's like, it looks terrifying. Yeah. There's, there's no and in between. Even, 
<laughs> no, there, there really isn't. It's it's not like this neutral thing. It's not. If you get enough, if you don't get enough, then it might be like, ah, oh, so what? But if oh, you yeah. get enough, yeah. it's there's it's there's no middle ground. And mm. that even people who have really positive experiences, sometimes afterwards, when their ego comes back, then it might even be more difficult for them because now they're like, oh, now I'm like stuck back in reality again and I've got all my problems again. Mm. Whereas I was just in this state of absolute ecstatic bliss and I want to go back to that. So sometimes even a really positive experience can create dissatisfaction with normal everyday lived reality mm. for people. Um, and that also positive reactions can result in spontaneous reactivations that then occur after the fact where you're, you're at home and you're in bed and you're sleeping and all of a sudden you wake up in the middle of the night and it's like, oh shit, it's happening. Mm. And so even someone who had a good time, they might not like that. Yeah. You know, like just, just a few days ago, I was contacted by someone down in Los Angeles. No, Santa Barbara, Southern California. And he said he had his 5-MEO experience and it was super positive and it was great. But then in the week afterwards, he started having all these spontaneous reactivations. And he said you know, he was trying to meditate and he was just going back into 5-MEO land and he felt wow. completely out of control. And this guy was – by the time he contacted me, he was in full-on panic mode. Again, yeah. his experience with the medicine itself was beautiful and blissful, but it's the the impact of that and then the after effects were very difficult for him. And mm. and usually when people are going through something like that, in most cases all they need to hear from me is, "You know what? This is totally normal. You're just fine. This is just how the energy works and it's how it processes." And so that helped him to get through and just understand that, look, you took the lid off Pandora's box, right? Yeah. This is what's going to be happening for the next time period. And the more you fight with it, <clears throat> the worse it's going to get. If you can just relax and trust and just treat it like a medicine experience itself, all of that is going to process through more quickly and more easily. And ultimately, all of this is to your benefit. That again, mm. the ego is like this prison. It keeps us in prison. And once we get out of prison – even if it's only for 10 minutes with 5-MeO, then our energy is, starts to say, hey, let me mm. out. Why do you keep putting me back in prison? Why do you keep doing this to me? And so mm. it's going to start to fight to work its way out. And once those kinks have been made in the armor of the ego, it finds ways to seep out. And it initiates this process for people that ultimately they just need to submit to or it becomes very difficult and very unpleasant. Yeah, I've definitely experienced some terrifying trips that took me a little bit of time to get over, um, and I'm sure many people as well. So, do you, would you have any tips or tricks to try and to help them overcome this post existential crisis they may get from a psychedelic experience? Yeah, well, first advice that I always like to recommend there is. Always remember that no matter what you see or what you experience in your psychedelic session, it's you. Mm. Okay? One of the places where get, people get tripped up, especially if there's entities or difficult energies involved, that they start to think, well, this came from somewhere and this is doing mm, something to like me. So demons. that people develop yeah. – Yeah. <laughs> people develop like a victim identity. Yeah. And then they go trying to fix that problem or they try and remove this or they try and undo it. And – so just always reflect on your psychedelic experiences and remember that no matter how difficult or dark or challenging it may have been, 
you can remind yourself, well, it's all me. This is all just a mirror and that <clears throat> in some capacity, this is serving me, that this is showing me that I've got a lot of fear inside me, that I've got that I'm, I haven't found my ability to trust completely. I haven't found my ability to love mm. completely. So that then this is an opportunity to then work on yourself and then examine as you move through your daily life, oh, did I just experience fear and lack of trust? Well, can I choose differently? Because all of this stuff, it's all built on choices. We choose to hate. We choose to be mm. fearful. We choose not to love. All of these things. We choose to be a victim whatever it may be. And so it's all about ways of finding where can I make a choice that's clear? Where can I make a choice that's more authentic? Then after any kind of psychedelic session, actually back up a moment. One piece of advice I also always give to people. And for me, this is absolutely fundamental is in any psychedelic session. If you are using the psychedelic in order to gain self-knowledge and also assist yourself in your liberation, then something that's very important is using bilateral symmetry mm. in your body, where the left and right sides of your body are balanced and open. So I call anything that exhibits bilateral symmetry that's just open like this, this is a neutral position. So as you move through your psychedelic experience, when you get scared or nervous, you start to scrunch up or maybe you start yeah. to you know, turn away or mm. you're looking around like, oh crap, they're over there and oh shit, they're over there too. No. You go through your experience and you stay focused. So you, here you are. So here's the camera. So I'm going to look there. And you just <laughs> focus on that. And no matter what happens, you don't look away. You just face it, face it, face it. And you can open up and you can, okay, I'm going to embrace this. This is really terrifying right now, but I'm going to embrace it. I'm not going to try and protect myself. I'm not going to cower. Mm. I'm not going to turn away. So then as these events occur after the psychedelic session, when you start to feel that anxiety and like, oh shit, it's happening, you go back to a neutral position and observe your body language. Observe, well, what happens when I get nervous? Do I start to, you know, ball up my hands into fists? Well, then can I relax them? Do mm -hmm. I get, do I start to hyperventilate? <gasps> oh my God, I'm scared. Okay. Well, then relax your breath. Do you clench up your stomach muscles? Okay. Relax your stomach muscles. Do you, if you, when you're uncomfortable with something, do you look away like, oh, you know, if somebody says something to you that makes you feel self-conscious, you like, oh, <laughs> you look away. Yeah. Well then practice. Okay. I'm going to look you right in the eye when you tell me something I don't want to hear. And then I'm, I'm not, I'm not going to turn away. I'm going to keep looking at you. I'm going to address it that way. And I'm okay. going to address it with bilateral symmetry in my body. See, hmm. it's all about the energy. All of these things are just energies. So when you're confronted by difficult, challenging, or uncomfortable energies, you go into a neutral position, you scan your body, you scan your reactions, and you even listen to your voice. Like, what's my tone of voice? Like, if, if I'm getting nervous, maybe I'm going to start to talk really fast and, like, talk up high. And I'm nervous. <laughs> okay, bring it down. Bring it down. Find your point of relaxation. Find where you can trust yourself and that that can shift your energy because all that's happening – when difficult things arise is that through the ego and our censoring and self-editing, we're always stuffing stuff down inside ourselves. And then we're trying to ignore it. Like, oh, that's, that's the icky part of myself I don't want to look at. I don't want to think about it. I don't want to feel it. I don't want to deal with it. So I'm just going to pretend it's not there and go about my day. I'm doing great. Super, right? No, this stuff's going to want to come out. So as it's uncomfortable, 
you relax into symmetry, then that energy can start to work itself out. So every form of energy comes in waves and there's a peak and then there's a crest and then it's going to wash out. And so what happens is when things get uncomfortable, people try and fix it. Mm. They try and avoid it. They try and change it. They try and block it. See, these are all energetic responses. Yeah. If you can just relax and say, okay, this is really uncomfortable. Oh my God, this is really uncomfortable, really uncomfortable. Then that energy can move up and out and it can release on its own. Mm. Yeah. And the amazing thing is when you do this, it can go from horrific to ecstatically blissful in the blink of an eye. Because once it's out, it's like, boom. It's like, I don't even know what I was scared of. Mm. I was, I was petrified a second ago but now that the energy has moved it makes no sense to me that i was just so afraid mm. okay so it can yeah. change instantly it's when people fight with it that it prolongs it and it might last for weeks or months or years or who knows wow. how long yeah so, so the more you can just trust relax do nothing feel yourself rest in symmetry the more quickly all of these energies move through. And everything is a learning opportunity because it's all a reflection of yourself. If there's something that's making you uncomfortable, that's you. Okay? You are making yourself uncomfortable. So you can ask yourself, well, why would I want to make myself uncomfortable? And it's usually because people think that they deserve it or that they're yeah. not worthy of feeling something else. So it all relates back to your ability to love yourself both individually and personally and also universally in terms of can I love everyone and everything and not be judgmental and not try and push some things away and not try and yeah. gather everything else for myself from this personal egoic perspective, but how can I just be present with reality, with an open heart and rest in love, in presence, in awareness, and then everything becomes easier because you're not fighting with yourself. You're not fighting with reality anymore. Mm. And all psychedelic yeah. experiences are just amplifications of this process. That's all. That's all they are. It's just an amplification. There's nothing else really going on there as, as much as all the amazing things that happen when you take psychedelics. <laughs> it's all just this energy that's trying to sort itself out. And underneath all of it is an invitation that says, hello, you're God. Did you get it yet? Did you get it yet? This is you. All yeah. of this is you. Did you get it yet? Oh, you don't get it yet? So you're afraid? Oh, you want some demons? Okay, here come some demons. <laughs> there. Did you get it yet? No? Oh, you want some angels? Okay, here are some angels. Did you get yeah. it yet? It's just you. You are creating this. You are creating your experience. So learn to take responsibility for yourself, not freak out. Learn how to trust. Mm. This is just you interacting with yourself. And that opportunity, that invitation is always present, whether you're on psychedelics or not, it's present in every single moment because yeah. that's the fundamental nature of reality. That's just what is. Yeah, hundred percent agree. Very wise words. Yeah. <laughs> well, cheers. Yeah, cheers, man. Um, actually, because I know that you're quite knowledgeable on religious studies, so I just wanted to touch on the, I guess, the link between the psychedelic experience and religion. Like some people sure. say that the psychedelic experience is the root of all religions. I don't, like, I don't know. What do you think about that? Well, I think when we are dealing with deep history, I think that that is absolutely true. Yeah. Um, you know, yeah. when we look at religions as they exist nowadays, they have moved – most of them have moved very, very far from their psychedelic core, their psychedelic origin. Yeah. 
But, you know, when we're looking at things like cave paintings, you know, and we go back um, 50,000 years, 100,000 years, and we see cave paintings um, before any of the religions that exist now were around and when we're people were living in these small hunter-gatherer societies, um, the cave paintings in many places around the world clearly depict psychedelic experiences where you've got these yeah. um, repeating patterns. You've got these both – there's a lot of bilateral symmetry that's depicted and also a lot of radial symmetry. So we have these mandala or kaleidoscope-like forms. And then we also see really strange-looking beings with weird patterns on them. And these are all the kinds of things that people see when they take psychedelics. Now, in anthropology, in the study of hunter-gatherer cultures, um, the primary religious or spiritual figure within these kinds of cultures tends to be what we call a shaman. Yeah. And a shaman is someone who uses altered states of consciousness to perform healing and conduct rituals and serve a variety of functions within their cultures. And something that anthropologists have found is that in environments where there are psychoactive plants and fungi, they're almost always used by the shamans within those local cultures. Mm. Um, and in places where there aren't psychoactive plants and fungi, then we see a lot of fasting and sensory deprivation and things like that in order to generate altered states of consciousness. Yeah. So whether it's through psychedelics or through other methodologies, all shamanism is tied in to the use of altered states of consciousness. And here in many of these cultures that these are just the tools that you use that allow for these experiences to take place. Yeah. Um, so shamanism, that was around a long time for hundreds of thousands of years before any large-scale developed religions mm. um, formed. But then even in large-scale religions where we have large cultures, you know, with large political social structures. Um, even there, we can see that many of these religions actually do have roots that tie back into psychedelics. Yeah. So in India, uh, with Hinduism, the oldest Hindu religious scriptures, which were probably oral traditions for several thousand years before they were even written down, those earliest scriptures clearly indicate some kind of use of a psychoactive plant, if mm. not several different psychoactive plants. And so in the, the Rig Veda, this is what's known as Soma. Yeah. Now, the Rig Veda does not say what the plant is or if it's a variety of different plants. So different scholars, some of them say, well, it's mushrooms. Some say it's, uh, it's psilocybin mushrooms. Some say it's amanita mushrooms. Yeah. Others say it's cannabis Others say, well, maybe it's an ayahuasca analog or maybe it's ephedra with an MDMA-like experience. So there's disagreements over what the actual plant or fungi might have been. Yeah. But, but we know it's there um, because it's written in the scriptures. Then in um, the Mediterranean, there were the mystery cults which originated in ancient Egypt and eventually became integrated into Hellenic Greek culture which predates Judaism, Christianity, and Islam. And these mystery cults, they also made use of psychoactive plants. Mm. So just like in Hinduism, there was some sacred drink that initiates could drink 
and that that would allow them to experience the gods or the goddesses or the divine realm. Yeah. And in Hinduism, this was generally within the language of non-duality that here by drinking Soma, you will realize that you actually are Brahman. You are the unitary nature of reality. And so we see this in Greek culture as well and in, in Egyptian culture. Um, then a little bit further east, we get into um, China mm. and Taoism. Yeah. And Taoism has uh, texts and references to both um, psychedelic mushrooms and also what were called mineral drugs, such as cinnabar, which is a precursor to mercury. Okay. So these Taoist sages were drinking these minerals that were producing altered states of consciousness. Wow. Um, in African traditions, there clearly is historical use of um, psilocybin mushrooms and also um, iboga from the iboga plant. And then when we get into Mesoamerica with um, Toltec, Olmec, Mayan, and Aztec cultures, they're using a wide variety of psychedelics, which were at the root of their religious experience. And then, of course, in South America, use of ayahuasca goes back thousands of years, um, probably even to the point where his name was Weston, Weston Labar. He was one of the first Western anthropologists to really examine use of peyote among native North Americans. Yeah. And his hypothesis was that as people from Siberia were migrating into the Americas, that they were, they were already using psychedelic mushrooms in Asia. And so that when they then populated the Americas, they tried everything they could find. And that's one of the reasons why there are so many different kinds of psychedelics that are used in um, Native American cultures than mm. in the old world because as these people were migrating from Siberia where probably the only psychedelic available there would have been the Amanita Muscara mushroom. Yeah. And then they're traveling into North America and then Central and South America. They're basically trying everything and they found all the different psychedelic plants and mushrooms that exist wow. in <laughs> these continents and yeah. they made use of all of them. But um, – you know, maybe the Americas have been populated for 20,000 years. Maybe they've been populated for 50,000 years. There are di disagreements among archaeologists there. But all evidence seems to indicate that even the earliest cultures in the Americas were already using psychedelics. Mm. And if so, if they migrated here from somewhere else, they must have brought that tendency with them. So from the anthropological perspective, Psychedelic usage in combination with religions and spiritual traditions seems to go back to the very dawn of human history and the dawn of humanity. So basically human beings have been using these things for thousands and thousands and thousands and thousands mm. of years. And then as religions became more structured, a lot of that then became more metaphorical and symbolic where then ritual was used in a sense – to mimic the psychedelic experience, but no psychedelics were actually being used. Mm, okay. okay. Yeah. Um, but that at their, at their very deep origins, the psychedelic experience really gave rise to religious experience and that, that then yeah. became myth. It became mythologized. It became symbolized. It became encoded into allegory. Um, but then there was a kind of, um, a distance between the religion and actual consumption of a psychedelic. So for example, by the time we get to Christianity, 
they're giving people a cracker and a sip of wine. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and versus the Greek mystery cults where their wine wasn't just wine. It was some kind of psychedelic beverage. And the, the Greek mystery cults – Kaikion? Was that, was that the one? Ka, yeah. Kaikion it's called Kaikion. Kaikion, yeah, that's and, right. yeah. And that was around for hundreds if not thousands of years before Christianity. But then Christianity yeah, comes yeah, along right. and says, oh, well, now we're going to give you a cracker and a little sip of wine and <laughs> Jesus is going to save you. Okay. Um, so the, it, that's a mythologization of the psychedelic experience and the transcendental experience. But then it just gets encoded into doctrine and dogma mm. and it becomes a belief system rather than an experiential system. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So that's that's really I how things so. change. So there's there's disagreement among scholars today whether psychedelics have ever been used in Christianity. And there's definitely different people on different sides of the fence. Yeah. Um, some say yes and others say absolutely not. Um, we don't have a time machine. We can't go back 2,000 years. Yeah, so we can't really We can never really, really know. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. But definitely prior to Christianity, we do know that Hellenic culture was using uh, psychedelics in at least some limited capacity within the mystery cults. Okay. Um, so at, at the general level, we can say that, yes, all religion originates from these psychedelic experiences. But that doesn't mean that all – religions are immediately connected to psychedelic usage. Okay. But that's where it all originates. And I think like for me, I, um, I got my PhD, my MA and PhD in religious studies. And for me, that was just one of the biggest aha moments of realizing, Oh, ancient human beings were taking psychedelics because Honestly, in my reading of religions, most of it's like, this is crazy shit. I mean, I can, what, what is this? <laughs> yeah, that's, that's what I think like, when I read all that kind of scripture. I'm like, yeah. this is psychedelic as fuck. Yeah. Yeah. But, <laughs> but then once you think, oh, it actually has origins in psychedelic experience, it makes so much more sense. And now it's not just, it's not, oh, they're crazy, but, oh, they're tripping. Okay. <laughs> the, okay. This makes a lot more sense to me. Now I can actually accept this at a level that I couldn't accept it before. Mm. Um, so for, for me, that was really influential in my own understanding of the origins of religion from just this crazy, I can't believe people believe this crazy stuff to, okay, they're tripping really hard. So I understand that this is where these kinds of things are coming from. Yeah, yeah. Um, well, speaking about religion, I wanted to ask you just your thoughts on what, if you can explain to the audience, what is enlightenment exactly? Because there's so many different definitions and people get a bit confused with what it is and how do we attain it yeah is, is it as simple as smoking 5-MeO DMT and being enlightened or no yeah. <laughs> um i always like to make a distinction between what i call enlightenment experiences and enlightenment um itself which yeah. i also like to call liberation yeah. which kind of goes back to the idea that i i like to call the ego is the prison yeah so liberation means freedom from the ego um, enlightenment experiences are an important part of the liberation process, but they are not equivalent. And that's really important for people to understand because, okay, so I do this thing with my hands. Okay. So here's the prison of the ego. You take your five MEO DMT and if you have a good experience it all, the, the structures of the ego dissolve and yeah. it's, oh, it's all one. It's this non-dual reality. It's all God. But then afterwards, the ego goes bink, 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 and the ego comes right back, and then there is the ego again. So see, that person is not enlightened. Mm. You've had oh, enlightenment experience, but then, oh, back in the ego. Yeah. And sometimes the ego says, oh, I'm enlightened now. 
because I had this experience. These are not the same thing. Um, liberation itself requires you have full self-knowledge. You have to know who and what you are. And that's where I like to tell people, yeah, you're God. And if you don't believe that, that's great. It just means you need to experience yourself as God and then you need to let yourself trust that reality. And just one experience with 5-MeO-DMT is not going to do that. It'll give you a glimpse. It'll give you an introduction. Mm. Um, but then the ego is going to come right back. And for some people, then the ego even becomes more rigid than it was before. So liberation means going through this process of getting out of the ego so that then you can observe what are the structures of my ego. So when you're in your ego, right, people do this all the time where they say, I, I don't know why I keep doing this same thing over and over again that makes me really unhappy. But every time I get into relationship, it goes into the same thing. It starts out great and then eventually mm. the same problems arise and then I get a new partner. Then the same thing happens again. I don't know why. What am I doing wrong? because you're operating from unconscious egoic patterns that are creating this reality for you because this is what you believe you deserve, what you, you think you need. So first you need to know, look, you're God and that you're disguising yourself as the individual that you think that you are. And that is based on a, a variety of choices that you have made that are centered on beliefs you have about yourself and the nature of reality. So you've got to learn how to let go of your beliefs, how to deconstruct them, and then how to make clearer choices so that you don't keep engaging in the same unconscious egoic patterns. So it's a process of bringing all this unconscious stuff to the surface, letting the backlog that these unconscious patterns have created within you to let mm. them clear out, which is a process that people need to go through and it takes time yeah. and patience and perseverance and it's not easy and it's often not pleasant. But then you let all this stuff out, then you're clear but then you have to become conscious enough of your patterns so that you then don't go out and then recreate all of these same patterns and make all these same confused choices again. And if you can do that and reach a point of completion, then you are free to be yourself. Okay? Mm. The ego is constantly censoring and editing ourselves so that we are not just being ourselves. We are being who we think we should be or who we ought to be or who we think we are. Yep. And we become attached to that. And so that's our prison. So then liberation or enlightenment is knowing who you are and being able to live with reality as it is on a moment-to-moment -moment basis so that you can choose to enact your energy and expression freely without trying to make it look like or be anything. And you can do that in the moment so that you are free to be as you are and that that's what liberation is. Mm. And it's not, some people think, well, if I'm enlightened and liberated, it means I'm just, oh, I'm just blissed out all the time. That's not it. Mm. Um, okay. Because the energies of reality are always changing. They're always flowing. They're always moving. And it's more like since you are that energy, you let yourself go with it as it arises and then when it finishes, then you go back down. So sometimes it's blissful. Sometimes it's challenging. But it's not some rarefied state. It's actually a very fluid state of mm -hmm. being. And that at that point, you are no longer confused by your ego. You are no longer filled with fear and filled with doubt and you don't mm -hmm. second guess yourself. 
You just allow yourself to be as you are. And that is what genuine freedom is. That's what liberation is. Um, and it comes with this knowledge that you are God so that you're not taking anything personally. You're not attached to anything. You have learned how to love everything universally. And that doesn't mean you like everything. You can love something without liking it. Yeah, yeah. So these are different. I get you. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and you allow yourself to be that. And so for me, that is the definition of liberation. And even there, my definition is a bit different than what you might find in, say, Buddhism or Hinduism, which say, well, liberation means you don't get reincarnated. And my position is nobody's getting reincarnated. So thinking that liberation means you're freeing yourself from being reincarnated means that you've just been distracted by your ego because you think that this is an issue. And when it's not, the only being that reincarnates is God. And it's doing that continuously every moment in every new form of life that comes into existence. That's God. It's not Martin or Tom reincarnating. Mm. It's just this one universal consciousness. So liberation comes with a sense of clarity and a sense of knowing yourself okay. and trusting yourself and loving yourself to an infinite capacity so that you will never, because you love yourself, you won't put yourself back in prison again. You won't be confused about the nature of your identity mm. so that the ego does not have the same trappings as it does. But the ego is still present. Yeah. And that's also important. That Again, people think, well, if I'm, I'm liberated, I'm just blissed out. There's no ego there. So, well, then you're not going to do anything. You're just going to be sitting there. Yeah, it's not and, practical. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's not practical at all. Yeah. So I also like to call it um, a form of energetic embodiment, that you are in your body, you're mm. energized by yourself, and that you're allowing yourself to embody what you feel without editing or censoring it, and you're just being what you are as you are in any given moment. And it's not some mental breakthrough. It's actually something that takes place here within your body. Mm. Um, so it's, it's mental, it's emotional, and it's physical. It's something that's happening at all these different levels simultaneously versus okay. in a lot of meditation traditions, they characterize it as like a mental breakthrough. They're like, oh, I got it. <laughs> and, and I would say, well, that's just part of it. Okay, you got it, but now can you live it? Yeah. Can you embody it? Exactly. That, Two different things that, that, completely. Yeah. Yeah. These are, these are different issues. Yeah. Okay. Um, cause you just touched on reincarnation and all that kind of stuff. So does what we do in this life matter than where we go next? Like after death? You, you are not going anywhere next. See, that's yeah. the ego. Yeah. Cause, cause Tom thinks I'm going somewhere, but see, Tom is simply a character for God to play in this body. When this body is gone, there's no more Tom. Mm. Tom is strictly identified with this body. Now God continues on forever and ever and ever, but that's not, there's no individual perspective that goes from this body to the next body, to the next body, to the next life and next life. That is simply the ego that thinks, Oh, I'm me. And so I must've come from somewhere and I must be going mm. somewhere. Right. And that's, that's the notion of reincarnation. That is 100% a projection of the ego. There is no reality within that whatsoever you know it's like again it's just god there's one actor playing all the characters of reality simultaneously and eternally so the individual characters themselves once that vehicle has expired that character is gone 
So yeah. there is no afterlife. You're not going anywhere because you didn't come from anywhere. You're just a temporary construct that is perceiving and experiencing yourself as Tom in this body at in this moment. But once the vehicle that Tom is inhabiting is gone, there's no more Tom. Mm. So there, there's nowhere to go. So so yeah, you don't have to worry about heaven. You don't have to worry about hell. You don't have to worry about getting good karma so that you get a good incarnation in your next life. None of that's real. Those are all just projections of the ego. Mm. And it just – it gives the ego something to worry about and something to do. And it's like, oh, shit. Maybe I should become a Buddhist so that I get a good reincarnation. See, that's just the ego. Only the ego thinks that it needs to do something like that. Mm. So do you think it's a way for us to put meaning into our lives? Yeah. Yeah? Yeah. Okay. Meaning connected to our sense of personal identity. Yeah. Okay. So it's just something that satisfies the ego. And so that's why I tell people, look, you don't need to be religious. You don't need to be spiritual. All of this is an energetic issue. If you're concerned about it, you pay attention to your energy and you use these tools such as psychedelics to get familiar with how energy works within your being. And if you can do that, you can actually break down the energetic constructs of the ego and you can free yourself. Okay. Okay. But it doesn't have anything to do with spirituality. It doesn't have anything to do with belief or mythology or religious doctrine. All of that is 100% created by the ego to give the ego something to do to make it feel important and that it's making progress and you know, being a good person or whatever it is that it thinks. But those are just games that the ego plays and they're really not necessary in any capacity. Mm, okay. Interesting. Well, we're getting to the end of our little podcast, but I – I actually got a few Instagram questions so from fans that I okay. want to ask you. Uh, oh, yeah, so the first one from Julian Hatton asks, how do you compare the toad and synthetic 5-MeO DMT and are there any other psychedelics you find value in? Um, I'll answer the last part first. Okay. I think all psychedelics are great. I yeah. have yet to meet personally a psychedelic that I did not enjoy. Um, <laughs> okay. And so I've tried a wide variety. Now, in terms of non-dual realization and liberation, 5-MeO is the best. Takes okay? the okay. It, yeah, it's, <laughs> it's the best for those purposes. But, um, you know, all the rest I think are great. Um, okay. so, so I like them all at that level. And, and from um, a, actually from a healing perspective, would you say that 5-MeO is still the best one or then does it just differ from person to person? Well, well it is the best one because – 99.9% of all our difficulties and problems are either exacerbated or caused by the ego. So in working with 5-MeO-DMT, you're going right to the core of yeah. the issue. Yeah. Okay. So this, this is something that I've seen a lot with people who have done a lot of work with ayahuasca or peyote, again, both of which are very common and very popular around here in Southern Oregon. When I've worked with people with 5-MeO-DMT, they have felt like, oh my God, we got right to the thing that has been bothering me my entire life that none of these other medicines ever even got close to touching, mm. but we, within seconds we're there. So it's, it's much more accelerated. Yeah. Now all the medicines can help people with healing and self-realization. So they all can serve that purpose. Just 5-MeO is on a different level. It's on a different scale. So it's much faster and it's much more direct. And so it, it allows you to do accomplish things that might take years working with okay, ayahuasca. Okay, so it cuts through all the bullshit. <laughs> right yeah, it, yeah, yeah. Okay. And because it, it's often not experienced visually by people, there's less tendency for the ego to get involved and create projections of angels or demons or things like mm. that. And that so could become a distraction, right? 
the visual yeah, phenomena. So can, yeah. Right. So it can allow people to bypass that and go directly to the source mm-hmm. of the issue. So it's very effective in, the, in that route. Now, when it comes – all the things that I'm talking about here today, there is no difference between um, the secretions of the Sonoran Desert Toad and a synthetically produced – molecule of 5-MeO-DMT for the purposes that I'm talking about here. Okay. Okay. They work exactly the same. There's no difference. They're both equally as effective. Now, that said, there are some differences between toad venom and the pure molecule of 5-MeO-DMT because toad venom contains a wide variety of other substances inside of it that can influence the experience. Some of them are toxic. So people are actually more likely to have a difficult and kind of toxic reaction to toad venom than they are to pure lab-produced 5-MeO-DMT. Okay. That makes sense. Also, because of these other additives within toad venom or toad excretions, um, it tends to be a little bit more visual than pure 5-MeO-DMT. Okay. Um, Toad venom – also has a smell and taste that's a bit like rotting fish, which is not present in the pure molecule. The pure molecule has a very slight floral scent and taste to it, um, whereas toad venom, again, it kind of has this rotting fish kind of smell. Okay. Like anyone who's ever been to like a fisherman's market where there's lots of fish out and you go, oh, yeah, it smells like <laughs> fish. The toad venom kind of smells like that. Okay, um, interesting. And, and also because of some of the other things that are in the toad venom, the experience uh, tends to last a little bit longer, mm, okay. but not all that much. Um, but for the purposes of toad venom or synthetic 5-MeO, does one get you out of your ego better than the other? No. Okay. No, no. There, okay. So at that level, there's no difference. So there's some slight phenomenological differences. But other than that, for, for my concerns, I view them as – identical because I'm not really concerned about these other differences. Now, some people, they develop ideas that, oh, well, there's a spirit in toad medicine because it comes from nature versus something in a lab that was made by people. And so that's got bad energetic juju and it doesn't have a spirit in it. I think all that is just egoic nonsense. So some people get really caught up that like, oh, well, something that comes from nature is better than something that comes from a lab. And my answer to that is everything is God equally. There is nothing in reality that is not God. There are no individual spirits. Get over yourself. Now, if you just like toad venom more than synthetic 5-MeO, fine. Just Mm. don't make it an issue because if you make it an issue, that's your ego. Mm. Interesting. Very bluntly put. (laughs) I like it. Um, Cool. So I've got another next question. So we'll just do, yeah, we'll do two more. This one's a quick one. So Connor Hill 33 asks, is 5-MeO-DMT only found on the back of one species of toad? Yes, it is only in the Sonoran Desert toad. Um, The primary tryptamine that is present in toad venom is bufotenine, which is 5-HO-DMT. So it's also a form of DMT, but if you pick up any toad around the world and you squeeze its glands, what you're going to get is bufotenine. Now, Something like 80% or so of the Sonoran Desert Toad's excretions are bufotenine. So it's got a lot of bufotenine in it. It has a little bit of 5-MeO, anywhere from 10 to 15%, and then it's got some other stuff in there. Bufotenine is primarily a nerve toxin. Mm. So that's why 
no one goes around smoking just random toad venom because all you're going to be getting is bufonine and that can cause people to have um, kind of like this paralysis where the ah, oh, it, 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 it doesn't it doesn't necessarily feel good in your yeah, body right. and it's not producing these aha amazing experiences. The only reason people use the uh, secretions of the Sonoran Desert Toad is because it contains 5-MeO-DMT and it's the only toad in the world that does that. So it's it's kind of a mystery toad. Why this one toad and not others? Who knows? But that's just the way that it is. <laughs> the god toad. <laughs> yeah. That's crazy. Um, cool. So I've got one last question. Because um, some of these questions you've already actually covered, so I'm not going to ask them. Okay. Um, so Vegan Anthony asks, should we focus all our energy on helping others grow and helping others based on what we know, like a full-time activist type approach? or on our internal self and reaching a type of enlightened state and then helping others as things come, like what's in front of you in the moment and not going out of our way, traveling a lot to try and create positive change. Yes, exactly. The latter. The most important important thing is to find clarity and freedom within yourself. And then you're not operating from a sense of right or wrong or what I should do or shouldn't do, then you're able to respond to reality as it arises and you do it in a way that is authentic and genuine and real and that's what produces the most actual change. Otherwise, I mean, if we're just running around trying to fix everything, you have to understand that if you haven't done your work to free yourself from your ego – All that you will be doing is moving from one ego game to another. And some of them are more socially beneficial than others, but it's still just a game. It's not really the reality game. It's the ego game. Mm. And so, you know, I used to be like this. I was a political activist. I was an environmental activist. And it's like, oh, we got to fix all these problems. But kind of like 5-MeO-DMT realized, oh, the real problem is the ego. Mm. All the rest of this that we're trying to fix, these are symptoms of confused egos. The primary thing, if you want to get to the root, you deal with the ego. And so first, you got to deal with it in yourself. And then once you've dealt with it within yourself, then you can serve as a clear reflection to others Mm. to help them find clarity within themselves and see if everybody did this, there wouldn't be any problems left to fix. Okay, because the the problems themselves arise out of the confused nature of the ego. So this is the most direct and immediate way of solving the world's problems is let's deal with the ego. And then most of the rest of this will evaporate on our own. And then whatever's left, we can achieve through cooperation and proper application of technological, scientific, Mm. social programs in order to create the kind of world that we want. Yeah. but that, that should be the primary focus. And then also being true to yourself. So if once you've found yeah. clarity within yourself, if being true to yourself means, okay, now it's time for me to go save the whales, then you do that. Because again, it's yeah. an energetic thing. If the energy is there like, oh, I want to save the whales, okay, well, now I'm going to work on it. But I'm not doing it because, oh, I feel so sorry for the whales because that's just human egoic sentimentality. Yeah. Because again, it's mm. just God. Every problem in the world is just God doing it to itself. So if you want to help alleviate those problems, you've got to help God in all the form of all these other people, help them find clarity, and then they won't do these things anymore. Yeah. The only reason people are racist is because they're confused. 
The yeah. only reason people are ethnocentric is because they're confused. Yeah. The only reason people attach themselves to their political identities and get into these bitter political fights is because they're confused. If they got over themselves, they wouldn't do that. And then it wouldn't be left, right, conservative versus liberal, Christian versus Muslim. All of that stuff would just go poof. Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah. It's, so, so it, it's good to let things come naturally and do what's aligning with your core values instead of just forcing and trying to save the world because there's no world to save, you know. Right. Yeah. Right. Okay. Well, awesome, man. I really enjoyed our chat today. I've got a lot to ponder on for the rest of the day. Um, I guess for the audience at home, do you, do you have any recommendations on where they can have this 5-MEO DMT experience? Obviously, places where it's legal. For... Yeah. Um, it's currently illegal in the United States okay. uh, as of 2011. But there's lots of places where it is not a scheduled substance. Um, Australia is one of those places. There are a variety of people who come through Australia and make this experience available. Um, so it's legal here. Yeah, it is. Oh. It is not. It is not technically an illegal substance in Australia, nor is it in Mexico or in Canada or in Ireland or Costa Rica. Um, so there's lots of places um, now. There are a variety of ibogaine clinics in Mexico because that also is legal in Mexico. Yeah, yeah. And a, a lot of places in Mexico first they serve people. Ibogaine, and then after you're done with ibogaine, then they give you a 5-MeO experience, usually through toad venom. Um, and there are some wandering providers out there that kind of roam the world, and um, people can find out who they are. I don't necessarily want to promote anyone, of course, yeah, um, yeah. but you, you know they can find who they are. But there also there's a new website that's being put together, just called 5MeODMT.com. And that's like kind of a global gathering place for people to find resources. Huh. Um, so this medicine is spreading around the world. It's spreading very, very rapidly, actually. And so I would just say, even on Facebook now, there's there's like the Berlin 5MEO group. There's the London 5MEO group. You know, the, these, these groups are popping up on Facebook um, because people are being exposed to this and getting knowledge about it. Um, so a, a lot of this... You know, you just just kind of keep your eyes open. Um, yeah, it's not, it's not hard if you look. Yeah, yeah, yeah. There's more opportunities for it than you might realize, and yeah. you just have to kind of pay attention and cool. you know keep track of who's going where and when and what might be available. Cool. And and do you recommend people to do it with a, a guide or a practitioner? Or yeah, good question. Um, okay, you can order it online. You can get it yourself in places where it's legal. You can just go and order it. But I always advise people. Do not do that. Yeah. It, this is I 100% ex- agree. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. This is extraordinarily powerful. And even if you think you're a seasoned psychonaut and that you can ride through your DMT experiences with no problem, you have no idea what you're getting into. Nope. And I've had that arrogance before. Like, oh, I've done this. I've done that. And then I'll have yeah, this. Yeah, I can do it. Yeah, yeah, no. Yeah. Every, so every really- psychedelic is a different game. Yeah, Especially they're all me, different, yeah. and this one is so powerful that no matter what your previous experience is, you have no idea how you're going to react. Yeah. And like I said, it, it's not the majority of people. Most people have a very positive, productive experience. Some okay. people have the worst freakout imaginable yeah, that it takes them it. years to overcome. Some people get hyper-violent, and they try and fight with other people in the room. Some people try and run away. Other people throw up all over themselves. 
Um, I mean, this is really, really dramatic medicine. So it's very important that at least for the first few times that you experience it, my advice is work with somebody who is familiar with it, who knows what they're doing, who knows what the proper dosage is, and knows how to handle different kinds of reactions from people. And some people get like – some people get super sexual, especially women, and they just might start crawling all over you or something. <laughs> that's and, what my friend, my sorry to cut you off, but my reminds okay. me, of, uh, my friend, uh, he told me that um, one chick had a five MEO DMT experience. She had this cosmic organ, like I just want to have a hundred babies. I want to have sex, and she was like full on, like like intense cosmic yeah. organ. I don't know what it is, but yeah, it's just yeah. Funny you say and that. so, and so these these are things that can happen to people, and if you're with people who don't know that's a normal reaction, they might start Mm. to freak out and then that's going to impact your experience. And if you yourself, like I said, your first experience might be blissful and then your next one might be incredibly difficult. So you might think, oh yeah, this is no problem. I got it. Then you do your next time. It's like, oh my God, just reality turned inside out inside me and now all this stuff is coming up. So until you're familiar with your whole range of reactions, I don't think it's really advisable for anybody to do this on their own. So it's always best mm. to try and find someone who can and be with you through that experience. Um, but don't just go out and try it on your own. And then also when people do just try it on their own, most of the time they're a little bit too timid, so they're not really going all the way anyway. Mm. Yeah, so you've got to go all in, right? <laughs> Yeah, yeah. You know, it's it's like I like to say it's like the event horizon of a black hole. That unless you get the full non-dual experience and go all the way into the deep end, no matter how much you sample it and try it up to that, you still do not know what is on the other side of that event horizon. That you until you go all the way, you literally have no idea. And see, that's something that people say all the time after they've actually had this experience. Is like. I thought I knew, but I had no idea. Yeah. There's no way I could have understood or imagined that. And so just check yourself and remind yourself, no matter what it is that you think you know or what experiences you think you have had, nothing compares to this. Yeah. You don't know. And then once you've had it a few times, then you'll start to understand it. But up until then – Until you then, really you don't know. know shit. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> oh, awesome, man. Like, like I said, awesome conversation. Um, yeah, thanks for coming on the podcast. Uh, where can people find you? Well, my main webpage is www.martinball.net. And I also have a YouTube channel. I have a podcast. I have a psychedelics conference that I put on here in Ashland. I've got a page for my um, visionary art. I've got several pages for music. I've got my books. You know, I've got all kinds of stuff. But if you just go to martinball.net, that's the okay. central place. And, um, that's the hub of I everything. Still, I, yeah, <laughs> yeah, and I still haven't hit the limit of friends on Facebook. So people can friend me on Facebook. And there <laughs> you have to use my middle initials. It has to be Martin W. Ball. And so you can find me there on Facebook because um, there's some other Martin Ball. I also use my middle initial for my books and stuff like that okay. because I don't normally use it. But there's, there's, there's a, a couple other Martin Balls who are authors. There's another Martin oh, Ball really? who's a musician. There's some other Martin Ball who's got wow. my Facebook page. So I have to use my middle <laughs> initial, but you can find me there. But Fair for enough. my webpage, uh, it's just M-A-R-T-I-N-B-A-L-L dot net, martinball.net. Awesome. Well, that's it, man. Okay. Very good. <laughs> awesome. Well, enjoy. All right. See you, man. Bye. Okay.